the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. In John chapter 2, Jesus comes and he cleans house. He cleans up the house of God. Uh, it's a cool story. Uh, it's, uh, well, I can't say what I, I think it is uh, in a church setting, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's bad. It's, it's very, in a good way, in the 80s way. But, but what's going on here? Is this Jesus, um, he just had a bad morning, didn't have his coffee, he had to sit in traffic on I-4, and he's just ticked off? Uh, this certainly isn't a sort of, uh, you know, divine hissy fit. But what's going on here? When Jesus comes to Jerusalem, it's during the Passover, near the Passover, and he drives out the animals with the whip. He takes the money, the, the ancient cash registers, and dumps all the coins out on the ground. He turns over their tables. What is he doing? Well, both what Jesus does and when he does it uh, are significant. And, and I mean that in the strict etymological sense of the word significant. The, these are signs. And they're not just bare signs, but actions which, which both speak, tell you something about who Jesus is and what he's doing. And they're also speech acts in that they accomplish something. So let's start with the when. Why is when Jesus does this significant? When does Jesus cleanse the temple? It's amidst the Passover celebration. Well, what was the Passover? The Passover was a festival commemorating the deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt when the angel of death passed over, thus the name, when the angel of death passed over the Israelites who had on their lentil and doorpost the blood of a spotless lamb. Thus Jesus comes, declaring in dramatic action himself to be the Passover lamb of God. And also he's declaring the end of the sacrificial system under the law of Moses. And Jesus is the end of the sacrificial system in both the sense that he is the telos of all sacrifices, that is the end, the goal, what they were pointing to. You see, all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they're, they're pointing to Christ. They're foreshadowing Christ. And any efficacy which they had was rooted in anticipation of the one oblation of himself once offered. That is the sacrifice of Christ. But he's also the end of it in a chronological sense, that the Jewish temple and the sacrifices which were offered there were coming to an end. And he signals this quite dramatically. The, the animals for sale in the temple, which Jesus drove out with a whip, what were they used for? What were these animals being sold for? They were being sold so that they could be sacrificed. So it's not that the money changers had set up a sort of ancient pet smart and people were coming there to buy, you know, their, their dogs and cats. Jesus 
temporarily disrupts the sacrificial system. He, he shuts down the temple, if you will. To rectify abuses, yes, because his, his father's house will be called a house of prayer, but also to signal that in him, the system would be set aside. As Aquinas penned in the hymn, Now My Tongue, the Mystery Telling, types and shadows have their ending, for the newer rite is here. The law of Moses, the sacrifices under Moses, were types and shadows. They were pointing to the reality, which is Jesus Christ, our Passover. Well, Jesus doing this, uh, cleansing the temple, that is, and especially the manner in which he, he did it, it raises some eyebrows. And so the Jews say to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? In other words, give us a sign to demonstrate demonstrate that you have the authority, the divine authority, to do what you just did. In a way, it's like, how dare you? When Jesus had come to the temple, let you think about how significant the temple was in the ancient world. For the Jews, the temple was the center of the world. It was the place where heaven and earth do business. And Jesus just come in and he's hung a clothes sign on the front window. Give us a sign. Well, if they had been paying attention, they would have realized that Jesus had already given them about a hundred signs. I mean, he's doing this during the Passover. He's doing Messiah stuff. Remember the two main expectations of the Messiah that he would cleanse and restore the temple and that he would win the battle. Well, he's, he's coming in, he's doing Messiah stuff. He's cleansing the temple. He has this zeal for God's house uh, befitting the Messiah, the zeal spoken of in Psalm 69. I mean, the very fact that Jesus was even doing what he did, he's acting as one who has authority, that, that he would dare to do such a thing. But Jesus doesn't point any of this out. The sign which he gives them is called elsewhere the sign of Jonah. He points them to his death, his burial, and his resurrection, saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now the Jews took him literally and, and scoffed, saying, 40, 40 and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. One scholar writes this, Jesus challenges his critics to destroy not the sacred building, but his own body. Ironically, the latter is destined to be replaced, to replace the former. After the crucifixion, the temple of Jerusalem will be raised to the ground in divine judgment, while the temple of Jesus' body will be raised from the grave in divine glory. So this, this is good stuff. But why are we talking about it on the third Sunday of Lent? What does this have to do with the church's 40-day journey into the wilderness with Jesus? What well, has everything to do with it? Because 
you get one thing from me ever, well, first of all, it's, it's no Genesis and Exodus. I know I've said that about a million times. Everything Jesus did in the Gospels matters. It's not a bunch of random stories, filler till we get to the climax, which is the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. None of it is arbitrary. All of it is vicarious. He did what he did, yes, to the glory of God the Father, but he did it on our behalf. And as Christians, as those who have been united to Jesus Christ, we participate in the life of Christ. So Jesus is the temple, yes. He's speaking of his own body. He is the place where heaven and earth overlap. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, as Paul says in Colossians. That's temple imagery. All the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus in bodily form. But when Christ spoke of the temple as his body, he's also speaking of the church. We are his mystical body, and he is our head. Thus, the church is the temple of God. And this is, and that this is the case is taught implicitly and explicitly throughout the New Testament. As an example of the latter, listen to a portion of 1 Corinthians 3. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple ye are? So in one verse, twice, you are the temple of God. He says to the church, he says to the body of Christ. And later in that same letter, Paul, he was so patient with Corinth. You know, they're, they're having this issue where, you know, they're hooking up with temple prostitutes. And Paul has to, of course, put a stop to that. I mean, they're engaged in literal harlotry. And to correct them, he appeals to their union with Christ. He appeals to the reality that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the, the mystical body of Christ. He says, know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ. What are members? Members are body parts. That's sort of a dead metaphor for us, isn't it? About being members of a church or members of a club or, or whatever. Me membership. Well, that's corporeal language. It has to do with the body. We all know what dismemberment is. So we are body parts of the one body of Christ. So he says, know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of, of a harlot. God forbid. So he's appealing again to their identity in Christ. That when we understand what God has made us in his son. It enlivens our spirit. It motivates us to, to not want to um, pollute the sacred which God has made us in Christ. So Lent, here's why we're reading this today. Lent is a crude way of putting it. 
Lent is sort of a spring cleaning of God's house. The whip, which Jesus used to, to drive out the animals, to, to drive out the, the pollution in God's house, is understood by the fathers as the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's understood as, as divine doctrine, as the truth. And those two things go together because what does Jesus call the Holy Spirit? The spirit of truth. And the handle of the whip is the wood of the cross. So Jesus, by the spirit and by his cross in this season, is driving out of the church and her members anything that is not of God. Back to 1 Corinthians. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It's coming. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That we were bought with a precious, with the precious blood of Jesus. And that we are not our own. We belong to the Lord. And the Spirit, through His Word, and through prayer, and through fellowship with one another, and through the sacraments, he drives out anything, any wicked thing in us that's not of God. He purifies us. And he writes the law of God on our hearts. You got a, a double dose of the Decalogue this morning. Did you notice that? We're, we're, we're praying through the Ten Commandments. We're asking God to write these laws on our hearts, to have mercy on us. And then we heard it, of course, uh, as the Old Testament lesson. As we in, engage in the life of the church, as we in humility and surrender come before the Lord Jesus Christ in various and sundry ways, the Spirit transforms us. And he doesn't just give us the law, a list of do's and don'ts. He actually writes these on our hearts. The prophet Ezekiel. I will, I will, it's a prophecy about the work of Christ and the Spirit. And the new covenant. I will take out your heart of stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Don't miss this. And cause you to walk in all my statutes and law is, is written on our hearts by the Spirit. So we want to cooperate with the work of the Spirit within us. As, as Christians, the Spirit lives within us, but we're, we're still capable, even though the old man, the old woman has been crucified with Christ, even though Christ has had victory, uh, over sin and death and the devil. 
The old man, I was having a conversation with, with a young man uh, yesterday and talking about his identity in Christ, saying, yes, in Christ you're not an Adam, but we can awake the old man, the old nature, like a zombie. He can come back to bite us. And so we don't want to resist the Holy Spirit. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. This is all Pauline language. But we want to walk in the Spirit. And, and one way we can, there's a million sermons we could do on this. But, but one way, and, and even as a priest, this can be difficult, is just when we're in church, just to be present, to give to God our attention, and to focus on, on what we're saying, and, and to be fixed on adoring, adoring the Father in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are then in recognition of who and what we are, the which is the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and therefore not our own. We are to cooperate with the grace of God and in humility, begging the Spirit to search our hearts and to drive out of his temple that which Christ defeated on the cross, namely the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are to come to the foot of the cross and in repentance and faith receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from sin and deepens our union with the Lord. And when we receive his body, we become more truly his body and practice. We receive in repentance and faith. We are transformed into his likeness. And so we come to, the, to our Lord by his passion and in love and for our good, drives out by the Holy Spirit and within the body. And we come before him as a sick patient comes kneel before him in repentance and in humility and faith. And we say, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my soul shall be healed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.